0: Um, so today we're going to continue with that theme. You're going to see, uh, that kind of theme throughout the book of John. And so anyways, we're going to get started. I told you last week, I've got this giant Bible. Um, what I did not tell you is it actually has the cheat. Have y'all ever seen this before? This is like very old school. Um, so it's got these things that help you cheat. So literally I could put my thumb here and boom, I'm in John chapter one. Now, when I was a kid in children's church, we used to play this game called, sword drill. Anybody remember sword drills? Yes. Yes. And I remember the kids that had this on their Bibles were cheaters. Um, and I was the one, I was like, I I'm old school. I will do that without the tabs. But now that I'm old, I'm like, I want all the tabs. Like I want everything that I can get to help me find the scriptures. I want this giant print And last week I told you I got the giant print. Well, afterwards, one of my kids was like, Dad, how big is that giant print for real? And they opened it up and they're like, are you blind? Like, can you literally see anything in the world? And so, um, yes, apparently I am blind and I don't care. Um, There was a time I would have cared, but now I don't. So in this series, one of the things I told you is um, we're going to attempt to go through the chapter. There's a lot in chapter one. There's like 50 something verses in chapter one. And I'm going to struggle not to get through all of it because I love chapter one. And then as I was preparing, uh, already looking ahead to chapter two, um, I was like, okay, I'm going to cut out the whole first part of chapter two. I'm just going to preach a second part of chapter two because I really like the second part. And then... um, Jill, uh, if you guys don't know Jill Byron, she, she loves doing research. And so she sent me all this research on the first part of chapter one. I was like, Jill, you are killing me. I mean, chapter two, I was like, I don't want to know anything about the first part of chapter two, but she sent me all this good research. So next week, uh, we'll see what happens. I'll probably have to preach the whole thing, but today we're going to get into this. Uh, before we do, before we get into John, and if you have a Bible, open up the book of John, if your Bible's on your phone or your iPad. Open up the book of John chapter one. I'm preaching out of the new living translation. It's called the NLT. And so if you're looking for that one, if you want to kind of follow along, that's great. Some other translations that I enjoy. I'm not telling you that these are the best in the world that you have to read these. Um, But I like the ESV. If you want to feel a little bit smarter, ESV, a little bit bigger words. I like the ESV a lot. NIV—that's New International Version, or the Nearly Inspired Version. Um, just kidding. For those of you that read that, you can read the NIV is also a good translation. And then, of course, you got the New King James is another one I like to read when I want to feel smart, um, even smarter. Um, then there's the King James, and I don't read the King James because I enjoy English and I can't understand that. So, um, so I'll probably get some comments on this uh youtube channel whenever this goes up uh all right so before we get into it let me just give you a couple of quick thoughts that's going to help set us up for a few things that we're going to see um to in in the in the gospels you've got you've got four gospels john is considered the fourth gospel for a reason the first three gospels matthew mark and luke are called the synoptic gospels in other words they they all kind of tell the exact same stories John is the wild card. John comes in and he tells us stuff that the other guys don't tell us. Okay? For whatever reason, John wants to be different. And so he gives us a little bit more behind the curtain, a little bit more um, behind the scenes, whereas the other guys give you certain things. All four Gospels, though, work together to give you a full view of who Jesus is. For example, if you were to read the book of Matthew... Matthew is going to really talk about Jesus as the king or the Messiah. Matthew's written to Jews specifically, right? So the book of Matthew, specifically for Jews, it's all about Jesus being the king or being the Messiah. The book of Mark is different. Mark approaches Jesus from the servant leadership point of view. So as you read through the book of Mark, you'll find a theme, a thread going through Mark of Jesus being a servant, then you get to Luke, and Luke is a physician, like he's a legit doctor. And whenever Luke writes his book, Luke is really going to focus on the the humanity of Christ. And so, so yes, all of them are going to say that Jesus is Lord. They're all going to say that Jesus is God, and he's the Messiah, of course. But they they each have their own flavor, right? And so Luke is really going to focus on the the reality, the the humanity of Jesus. And 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 then we get to John, and John he wants to lean more towards the divinity of Christ. So so where Luke is going to tell you Jesus came in the flesh and was a man, John will mention that too, but Jesus I mean but Luke's really going to focus on that manhood, John's going to focus on Jesus being God. All right? So does that make sense everybody we kind of know the theme that we're getting into the difference between the books, right? So as we move on, um, we're going to get into the word here. And I just needed you to know that because because we start the book of John with what is called a prologue. So in other words, it's like John wrote his book and then came back later and was like, I need something for the beginning. And he writes the prologue. And so here's what the prologue says. I'm going to to kind of read through it, and then we're going to go back and, and discuss it. It says, in the beginning was the word, or my Bible says, in the beginning the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Okay, so we're gonna pause right there. Lexi, back to the top, all right? Back to verse one. Verse one says, in the beginning was the word, all right? It says the word already existed. Couple of things I wanna point out to you. Each of the gospel writers give us a genealogy of Christ To start their book, kind of, right? So if you look at the book of Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah. So where does the genealogy start? for him, it starts with Abraham. Why? Because he's preaching to the Jews and the Jews have father Abraham. So Matthew says, what's most important is that you guys understand that he's a Jew, that he comes from Abraham and that he's the Messiah. So Matthew starts the lineage of Christ, the genealogy at Abraham. Whenever we get to Luke, Luke is trying to tell us that he's a man. So who does Luke take the genealogy back to? Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam, the first man. Now, y'all thought that those genealogies didn't mean anything. That's what I thought, too. And so that's why when you're listening to them, you hit the 1.5 button on your phone. So it speeds up. Right. But there's a reason that these writers did what they did. And then when you get to the book of Mark, Mark doesn't give us any genealogy at all. Why? Why? Because Jesus is a servant and nobody cares about a servant's genealogy. Right? And so there's a theme that we have. But then we get to John. And John says, you cannot have a genealogy. Or you can have a genealogy that goes back to Abraham. Or you can take the genealogy all the way back to Adam. But he's God in my book. So i got to take the genealogy all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the word. Before creation... Before before animals, before man, before water, before sky, before sun, before moon, there was the word. And the word was Jesus. He was there from the very beginning. So whenever we look at, at that, we need to understand that. So, so then the next thing I need to ask you is this. Or the question that I asked was this. What is the word? And what what sense does this make? Is it talking about this word? Is it talking about this Bible? Absolutely not. Because this Bible was was printed, I don't know, not long ago, right? 2016. So it wasn't this Bible. It wasn't wasn't the physical Bible. So what is the Word? And and, and so sometimes whenever we read this, we kind of misunderstand because we're just kind of reading through and and we don't know what it's talking about. Well, there's a couple of reasons, a couple of things about the Word I want to tell you before we get into this. Oh, Lord. We're ten minutes into the message. I haven't made it past verse 1. For the Jews... I'm getting hot too. Um, I just got nervous all of a sudden. For the Jews, there's a word called Mimra. Mimra. And, and that word is a word that means the word, right? The word. But what the Jews would do is oftentimes they would take that and use that as the name of God. They would use that as the name of God. And, and so, so what that was, it was God's divine power outside of himself. So if you've ever heard the verse, God sent his word and healed all their diseases. What it's saying is, is God took his power. He took a piece of himself and removed it and sent it somewhere to have action, to do something. So whenever, whenever John says the word was with God and the word was God and the word was in the beginning, Jewish people that might be reading this book immediately understood because they understood that when God spoke the word he created, that everything was created through the word of God. But the jew I mean, the Greeks would read it, too, and the Greeks don't have that same understanding. And so that's why he wrote this in Greek. And when John wrote it in Greek, he used the word logos. And the word logos means this. It means that which holds all things together. See, the Greeks had this understanding that there were gods. They had Zeus and they had, uh, I don't know, Zeus, uh, other gods, too, you know, the whole pantheon. Um, and so they had Poseidon and they had Hades. I do know some of them. I'm not that stupid. But, um, so anyways, they had all these gods. But, but then they had this understanding that, that there had to be something beyond that. There had to be something greater than that, that whenever the world was created, there has to be something that that holds the world together, a divine power that holds all things in place. And it wasn't just Zeus and it wasn't just just Hades and Poseidon and Atlas. It wasn't all these people. It said there was something else and that something else was the logos. So when John writes to both the Jews and the Greeks, he writes the logos, he says, in the beginning was the word, the word, the very power of God outside of himself, the word, that thing that holds all things together. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. It also says in verse one, here we go. The word was with God and the word was God. I'm going to hang out here for quick. It doesn't say was a God. So if you were to look, if you were to go uh, Jehovah's Witness, if you, if you know anybody that's Jehovah's Witness or maybe you're Jehovah's Witness background, um, you, you would, Jehovah's Witnesses are going to say the word was a God. They translate it differently than all the Greek translators in the world. Right. They have their own translation that, that's not a good translation. And so it says they say the word was a God. In other words, they want to try to make Jesus out to be a created being. Now, that may not mean much to you, but I know of Christian churches that have adopted that belief also. And so that's the reason I want to throw that out there, because there are churches in our area that believe that Jesus was a created being, that he's just like an angel. But he's not. He is God. That's why John wrote this whole book to explain to us that he is God. And John begins to tell us, he begins to, to show us a little bit of the Trinity because he says the word was with God. You can say Jesus. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. That's, that's how the Trinity, and, and we struggle sometimes to understand the Trinity. And John starts to try to explain a little bit of it to us in a simple sort of way. And John's saying, listen, he is with us. I mean, he is with God. He is a part of God, but at the same time, he operates outside of the Father. And so there's, there's this neat dynamic that we've got here. Okay, let's keep going. It says, He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do throughout this chapter is I'm going to just skip some stuff. I'm going to read it. But I'm not going to get into every little detail because we'd be here forever. But let's get into verse five real quick. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. I love the idea that, that it says it can never extinguish it. The Bible also says some translations say can never understand it. In other words, we need to understand that we serve a God that is the light. So whenever God says, let there be light, that's God showing up on the scene. And darkness can never overcome the light. Darkness can never understand the light. Darkness can never put out the light. So as long as we serve the light, we never have to fear the darkness. And, uh, and, and I want to show you real quickly. Sorry, I know I'm getting carried away here. What you're going to see in those first five verses is an establishment, a claim. And you'll see this in John a lot. John makes claims and Jesus makes claims and then he ends up backing them up and bringing people to a place of a choice. And you see this a lot throughout the book. You're going to see Jesus do something. He'll he'll raise him from the dead or he'll say, I'm God. He'll he'll say something extravagant about himself. But then he, he brings people that, that tends to be a conflict with people and he brings them to a place of decision that they got to make a choice whether they're going to serve him or not, what are they going to do with it? And so this whole thing, this first five verses establishes that he's God. But then in verse 6, we, we meet someone new. It says, God sent a man, John the Baptist. It's a different John, not the writer. This is a, 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 a whole different person. Um, they call him John the Baptist because he baptized people all the time, right? And so uh, the, the word Baptist is, is kind of a cool word. Um, it also means uh, to plunge. And so you could call him John the Plunger. I really like that, that version Or John the Dunker, right? Um, To tell about the light so that everyone might believe in his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things in there. In those three verses, it says three times that John was a witness, he talked, and he had a testimony. And and I just want to tell you, you and I today, as, as Christians... We need to have a witness, a testimony. We need to be able to talk. We need to be able to tell people about Jesus. Yeah, but Gabriel, I can't get out on the street with a bullhorn and yell at people. I can't do that. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. You just got to tell the word testimony means what you've lived through, what you've seen. It's not about going and preaching the gospel to everybody that you see. It's about preaching what Christ has done in your life. It's just telling somebody what Christ has done. Some people want to talk about football and they want to talk about fitness and they want to talk about gardening and they want to tell me all kinds of stuff. My kids will come in and they'll tell me about a video game that they played and and I could care less. I don't care about the video game they played. I don't care about the imaginary dinosaurs that they killed and they rode and all the people that they shot. I don't care, but they want to tell me all the stuff. Right. Why? It's because what they lived through, that's what they're doing. And they just tell the story. Jesus has done so much more for us than a football team, than a video game, than than, uh, gardening. And so we should be able to tell people what Christ has done. Verse 9, the one who is a true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. We're seeing a problem here. Verse 11, "He he came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but from a birth that comes from God. This is important. So we've got the claim that Jesus is God. We've got John the Baptist giving us a testimony. He's telling us about about Jesus being God. And then we get into the conflict, the conflict between light and dark, the conflict between my desires and my faith. And and so we, we get into this conflict, and the Bible says this, that Jesus showed up and people rejected him. It says, but to all who believed and accepted. The word believe there, I'm going to say this a lot. John uses the word believe more than any other writer. John loves to use the word believe in his book. And the word believe there in the Greek, it doesn't just mean a belief one time. Like, like, oh yeah, I believe that. It was a belief, an ongoing belief of faithfulness. It's it's actually, if you look at it, literally it's believing. It it would just say to those who believed and go on believing. In in other words, it's not something I do when I'm 12. It's something I'm living out my whole life. A life of believing. Believing. And so John says that if you believe and you go on believing, then then you have the right to become children of God. It also says that those who accepted him and that word accepted means to take hold. It it means to be aggressive, right, to take hold and never let go. And sometimes when we think about our faith and we we think about where we've been and we think about what we've done, and and one of the things that I think I get a little bit concerned with sometimes is that we have people that say, I said a prayer when I was 20. I said a prayer when I was 18. I shook the preacher's hand. I signed the card. I became a member. And then all of a sudden, that's it. It was a contract that you signed. And now no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter what happens in your life, It's like everything's going to be fine. But there's this place that John says it's not just about a one-time deal. It's about a lifetime. It's about I'm going to go on believing. I'm going to grab something, and I'm going to hold on to it, and I'm never going to let go. I'm going to be tenacious. We have a dog at our house, and she doesn't know how to play. She's a street dog. That's how all of our dogs are. Nobody loves them. And they end up at my house. And I'm allergic to dogs, so it's awesome. So we got this street dog, and she didn't know how to play a game. And as soon as you put something in her mouth, like you take a stick, and you're like, hey, let's play this game, and she'll grab the stick, and you go to grab the stick and like, play tug of war, she just immediately lets go. Like, nah, I don't I don't want to play. I don't know what you're doing, and I'm scared, you know. But I had this other dog that's dead now, and he was part pit bull, and he would grab hold of stuff and never let go. Like once he got the rope, you could pick the dog up and shake him around. And he's like, no, 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 this is mine. I don't know who you think you are. This is my rope. And I'm biting this rope. I'm never letting go. And that's the attitude that John is saying that we need to have as we accept Christ. You don't just accept Christ. You grab hold of him and you say, I don't care what comes my way. I don't care what storm I go through. I don't care what people say to me. I don't care what my family thinks about me. I'm never letting go of this. I'm going to hold on. Forever. Verse 14. So verse 14 takes us a different direction. In verse 1, we went back to Genesis. We said in the beginning. Verse 14, we go to the next book of the Bible, and that is the book of Exodus. It says this. So the word became human and made his home among us. The word home there, uh, the idea of making his home among us means to tabernacle with us. It's a weird word, but but in the Old Testament, we had a tabernacle. And if you were to look at the tabernacle is where they worship God all throughout the tabernacle. There's all I don't have time to get into it, but there's all kinds of symbolism that represents Christ in the tabernacle. Even the way the Jews set up camp, they set up camp in a cross shape. Around the tabernacle, isn't that crazy? They set up in a cross shape around the tabernacle, even as they set up around the tabernacle. The Bible says that they had four um, flags at each point that they would set up to to divide them up. And and one group would set up the the tribe of Judah would set up under the flag of the lion. And then one group set up under the flag of the, the eagle and one group set up under the flag of the man. And one group set up under the flag of the ox. And you're like, that's a bunch of weird stuff. But if you keep going, the Bible says that that when people would see angels, a lot of times they would see angels, and the angels would have a face of a lion and the face of an eagle and the face of a, of a man and the face of an ox. And then in the, the book of Revelation, he says, I saw some living creatures, and they had the face of a lion and an eagle and a man and an ox. And then whenever you start seeing what are those three, those four things represent, you can see Jesus because you see that the ox is a servant. The ox does what you tell it to do. The ox pulls and it works hard. And Jesus was a servant according to Mark. And then you see that Jesus was a man. He he was physical. He came in human flesh. And Luke said that. And he's the shape of the man. And then we see the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a messianic prophecy. That he would be the king. And the lion always represents the king. The king of the jungle. Right? And lions don't even live in jungles. Which is wild. And then we see the eagle. What does the eagle represent? Represents God because it flies high above everything else. So we see the tabernacle in the Old Testament and it represents Christ. And so whenever the Bible says that the word became human and made his home among us, he tabernacled with us. He showed up on this earth. And listen, he became flesh. John is fighting against this Gnostic belief of the time that Jesus was just some kind of spirit. He was some kind of ghost. They, they had the, the old saying that, that Jesus could walk down the beach and leave no footprints. And so that's what John is fighting against right here. John saying, no, 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 no. He was all God, verses 1 through 5. But starting in verse 14, he was also man. He came, he showed up, he put on flesh just for us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen the glo- his glory and the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Here we go back to John again. John the Baptist, not John the writer. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds. This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am. For he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Let me pause right there. Unfailing love and faithfulness is a poor translation in the new living. I don't care for it. If you were to read this in the English Standard Version, the ESV, or just about any other translation, they're going to say grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen, here's the things we need in life. We need grace and we need truth. We need grace and we need truth. And where churches get messed up a lot of times is they lean hard into one or the other. They're either all grace and everything's all gravy, baby, and you can do whatever you want and live however you want and do whatever, say whatever you want. Or they lean hard into truth and everything you say and do and look at is sending you straight to hell. And we got to find a balance because the Bible says that Jesus is both grace and truth. So, there's a story that you'll read later on in the book of John where Jesus meets a woman who is caught in adultery and he tells her, I'm not condemning you. I'm not going to kill you. The, the, the law says I should stone you, but I'm not going to do that. But at the same time, go and sin no more. He gave her grace and he gave her truth. The truth is, you are in sin and you need to stop it. And so we find that in Christ himself. Verse 18 No one has ever seen God but the unique one, talking about Jesus. Who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Let's pause right there for a second. I love the fact that it says He's near to the Father's heart. The word picture there is a little pocket in your shirt, right? Have you ever, a lot of you have pockets in your shirts right now. And imagine putting your most precious thing in that pocket, He keeps it close to your heart. That's the word picture here. When it says near to the father's heart, it means that that Christ was in God. He's in the father. But as the word, he can leave the father. Going back to that thought of the word, something else that that I thought of, and I, I didn't even mention it in here, was the idea of how important words are. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart. So don't tell me words aren't important. Don't tell me it's just a word. What comes out of your heart comes out through your mouth. What came out of the heart of God was the word Jesus. So he's all in one. We're we're three parts of one thing. Verse 19. We're going to move quicker here. This is going to be the testimony of John the Baptist. And I'm not going to stay on this very long. One of the things I do want you to notice. So as I read through the story of John the Baptist, and then we're getting into the disciples and I'm doing okay on time. But, but through the story of John the Baptist and into the disciples, I want you to notice something. You're going to see uh, seven different names for Christ. I just think it's cool. Seven is like a, a godly number in the Bible. And you're going to see seven different names for Christ. I'm not a numbers guy, but I just think it's neat. And I believe, um, I believe that whenever I put uh, those scriptures in, I believe they're all going to be in blue up there. So, so whenever you notice them, I think it'll be a neat thing. So this was John's testimony. Uh, When the Jewish leaders sent priests and the temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? I love this part. Verse 20. He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Now, some people say the emphasis here is to be on I. Right. In other words, if he would have said, I'm not the Messiah. What is that implying? It implies that he is somebody. He's just not the Messiah. Right. But instead, he says, I am. I'm not the Messiah. In other words, I'm not him, but I know who he is, right? I know who he is. As a matter of fact, he's standing right over there. And, it, and some of you looked. He's not really over there. I'm, I'm pretending to be John the Baptist. I am not the Messiah. Well, who are you? They asked. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet we're expecting? No. Then I love how John the Baptist is like, he's just kind of cold character, Right? He's pretty hardcore. The guy wears camel skins and eats bugs like he is. um, He's a lot like what I imagine, like if my dad lived in Bible times. Just old, salty, you know, leathery skin, you know. I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? I love John. John just starts quoting the Bible. Like, I can't tell you a whole lot, but I'll tell you what the Bible says. John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the coming of the Lord. Then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, If you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? John told him, I baptize with water. But right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. This encounter took place in Bethany, the area east of the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day, John, again the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm going to pause right there. We see in blue, the Lamb of God. So that's the first thing he's called. But I want, to, I want to just give you a little bit of history. John's dad was actually a priest. We know that from the story of John the Baptist. We know his dad was a priest. So in other words, John understood the significance of the Lamb of God. He understood when he spoke those words, he wasn't just saying, look at this nice, pretty man. Look at this cuddly fella. He wasn't just saying, I like this guy. He was saying, here's the one that will be the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins. That we can't get to heaven on our own. Someone's got to die and pay the price. And it's this guy right here. John knew exactly what he was talking about. He is the one I was talking about when I said a man is coming after me who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Which is interesting that he existed long before him, but John the Baptist was older than Jesus. Their mothers were pregnant at the same time, but Mary had gotten pregnant later than um, Elizabeth, John's mother. So technically, John's older than Jesus, but John recognizes, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus's deity and his his eternal state and so he says he's older than i am he says i did not recognize him as the messiah so in other words john says i was with you guys at first i just thought he was my cousin at first i just remember him from you know the the family reunions and we were playing ball together all the time like that's who i remember jesus as it says i didn't recognize him as the messiah but i had been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to israel Wow, I just saw something. This is so cool to me. It may not be cool to you. Let's keep going. Verse 32. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descend uh, like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but, God, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest on, will, uh, rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Okay, this just hit me. Can't believe I didn't notice this the first time I studied this. I've read this chapter like a thousand times this week. This just hit me. He says, he's the reason I've been baptized. I didn't know who it was, but he's the reason I've been baptizing so that he would be revealed. In other words, John gets this revelation from God. The revelation is you're going to baptize somebody. And as you baptize them, the Holy Spirit's going to descend on them. And the Bible says rest, but it means to abide, to remain, to never leave. Right. So so he says you're going to see the Holy Spirit descend on someone and never leave. So why is John baptizing people? Well, he wants them to repent. Yes. He wants them to come to God. Yes. But he's baptizing because he got this revelation. At some point, you're going to baptize someone and the Holy Spirit's going to show up. And so what does John do? John says, I'm baptizing everybody. I'm going to just start baptizing people. Nope, not you. Nope, not you. Nope, not you. Glad you're saved. Get out of the water. i got to baptize another one. Like, keep bringing them in, folks. Eventually, I'm getting to the one. Isn't that a cool thought? Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that's neat. But the reason John is fanatical about baptizing, and the the, the Pharisees, what did they say? They said, who gives you the right to baptize? John was like, God told me to baptize. God told me I'm going to baptize the one, so I don't care what you guys say. I'm going to keep dunking people until I get to the right one. Whenever, whenever I was a children's pastor, this will help explain it, and then I promise we'll move on. When I was a children's pastor, I made the huge mistake of doing an Easter egg hunt and told people that we were putting, um, it, back in those days, it was Nintendo GameCubes or the cool thing. And I had gone out and bought a couple of Nintendo GameCubes, and I put a ticket in the eggs for the Nintendo GameCubes, and then I hid them all out in this field. And I made the mistake of telling people beforehand, this is what's in the eggs. Somewhere out there is a Nintendo GameCube. So that year, the older kids took off into the field, and as they took off into the field, they smashed every egg they saw. Why? Because all they cared about was the GameCube ticket. They don't care about the Tootsie Rolls. They didn't care about the, the Lifesavers. All they wanted was those GameCubes. And so they ran through the field. So the little kids go out there, and all the eggs are smashed. Right? And there's just eggs smashed everywhere, and these kids are running up to me. I got the ticket. One kid was like, I have three of them. You know, it's like, like what in the world? I only printed two. And so, um, and so it ruined it. It's the same theory here. They knew there was something special in one of those eggs, but they didn't know which one it was. So they're going to go through as many eggs as possible as fast as I can. I just think that's really cool. John Duncan, folks. So it says in verse, in whatever we were, 33, the one who the Spirit descends on and rests on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The word rest there, I already told you, means to abide or remain. And that's the difference. Whenever we talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Bible says Jesus will baptize us in fire. When the, the Bible says that, that the disciples in the book of Acts were baptized, they were filled, they, were, um, they received the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on people and then leave. He would show up, empower them to do something special, and then leave. But in the New Testament, we've got a Holy Spirit that shows up and stays. He abides. He doesn't leave. I saw this happen, verse 34, to Jesus, so I testify that he's the chosen one of God. Verse 35, and this gets us into the the meat of the message. That was all the intro. So here we are, 1056. Let's see what happens. The following day... John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. So John just keeps doing it, man. Every time he sees him. I'm sure Jesus was like, Can you come up with something different? You know, John's like, Lamb of God, there he is. He's going to die. Everybody, he's going to be dead soon. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And I love this. I love this. That John is proclaiming Christ. But he's not holding on to his own kingdom so tight that he's trying to hold back his disciples. He's telling the disciples, and, and we know now who they are. Um, it, one is John, the writer, and, and one is going to be Andrew, uh, the brother of Simon Peter. Right. So we'll get into that in a minute. But, but those are the two disciples. And John says, look, there's Jesus. There's the Lamb of God. And those boys say, we're following him. And John says, do it. Go. This is great. I love it. As many people as I can get to follow him, the better. Right? And so, what a a neat attitude we would never have in the church today. The following day. So, anyways, there's the Lamb of God. The two disciples left, and they followed Jesus. Now, here's the thing about following Jesus. You think that means they followed him like they were his disciples. It's way creepier than that. The way I read the Bible, they followed him like they're sneaking up behind him. Right? Because, here's why I think that. Because it says... In verse 38, Jesus looked around and saw them following, not learning, following, creepy behind them. Have you ever had those people that sneak up behind you and they want to talk, but they're not going to just interrupt you. So they just stand and look over your shoulder. Right. The people in this church sometimes. And all of a sudden you turn around and you like, ah, you know, and, and you don't mean to. And I can just imagine Jesus, the Bible says, he said, what do you want? I can imagine Jesus is walking and he looks behind him. Ah, what do you want? You know, like, I wonder if he was saying like, what do you want, brethren? Or if he was saying like, what do you want? Like, get off me. I don't know. I think I'm going to go with the calmer version of Jesus, but I would know what I would say. Like, I would say some things to him. And so verse 38, he turned and said, what do you want? And they replied, Rabbi, another word for Jesus, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Now, that's a weird question. Again, it leans into the creepiness. I'm following you. Where do you stay? What's your address? Jesus was like, I'm not telling you. Um, No, what it means there, where are you staying? It just means, hey, we want to see what your life is like. So Jesus says, what do you want? Like, why are you following me? And can I just tell you something today? I believe God is asking us the same question. I believe each and every one of us, when we show up at church, each and every one of us, when we wake up in the morning, I believe God is asking us, what is it that you want? What are the things you're looking for? And they're calling him teacher. They're calling him rabbi. They're saying, you've got something we need. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, what is it that you want? What do you want out of life? What are you searching for? And and they said, we want to see what you live like. We want to see what your lifestyle is like. We've been with John. Eating those crickets is not the thing. We want to see what you're doing, right? And so Jesus says very simply, come and see. In verse 39, come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon and they went with him and stayed where, to the place he was staying. and they remained with him the rest of the day. Let me, let me focus on come and see for just a second. One of the things I teach people when it, when it comes to church is I say, you, you don't have to the first Sunday get plugged in. Sometimes you need to just come and see. Sometimes we need to figure out what it is that we want. And there's people in this city, in this community, there's people that are your neighbors and your family members, and there's something that they want, and sometimes they don't even know what they want. But there's a void, there's a vacancy in their life, and they need something from God, and they're not even sure what that is. And so what is your response to them? Your response may not be to beat them over the head with the Bible. Your response might be, come and see. Just come to church with me. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to sing the song. You don't have to clap. You don't have to get out your Bible. You don't have to dress a certain way. Just just for one time, just come and see. Just come see what God might want to do in your life. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. I love this. I love the fact that he brought Simon. He didn't invite Simon. He brought him. He brought him. You know what Andrew did? Andrew said, Simon, I want you to come to church with me. I want you to meet Jesus. And Simon said, I don't know, man. Like, then I will not have time to fix my lunch. And Andrew's like, I'll buy you lunch. We'll go to Chick-fil-A. Ah, no, we won't go to Chick-fil-A. Wait. Church is on Saturday then. We'll go to Chick-fil-A. I'll take you to Chick-fil-A if you'll just come with me. Yeah, but I don't know anybody. You can sit by me. You can sit by me and you know that guy Crazy John that eats a a locust, he'll be there too. Just come sit with us, right? What is he doing? He is bringing, he's taking away all the excuses. And I love that. When you're passionate about someone and, and Andrew was passionate about Christ, he said, I'm bringing my brother with me. I don't care what his excuses are. It doesn't say he invited him. It doesn't say he pled with him. It says he brought him. I wonder if he grabbed him by the hand and pulled him. I don't know. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter, which also means rock. I like the fact that Andrew brought his brother to meet Jesus. Andrew didn't change Peter's life. Jesus changed Peter's life. But it all starts with someone being brought. There wasn't a big, long sermon. There wasn't this big testimony. He didn't get out a soapbox and stand on it. He didn't have a bullf- bull bullfrog. Nope, didn't have a bullfrog. Bullhorn. He just said, I'm going to take you to Jesus. I'm going to take you to somebody that can change your life. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me. And I like the fact, here's three things Jesus is going to say to us. He's going to say, what do you want? And then he's going to say, come and see, just come hang out with me and see what I can offer you. And then he's going to say, come follow me. And this time when he says, come follow me, he doesn't mean walk behind me. He means come live like I live. The call that Jesus has for you today and for me today is to live like he lived. Not to live like you want to live, not to live in your desires, not to live in your wants, not to live in your past, not to live in in, in how your mama raised you, not to live in your genetics. He is calling you to live like he lived. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip, verse 45, Philip went to look for Nathaniel. So Philip has a friend named Nathaniel and he told him so. So now we've got Andrew goes and finds Simon and now Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. Can you see what's happening here? It shows us something. And, and I love the fact, I've, I've had people say to me before, when we, had, when we went through COVID and, and we lost more than 50% of the church, people just stopped coming and didn't come back. Most of them didn't come back. As a matter of fact, probably most of the people in this room right now, you're here since COVID. And part of the reason you're here is because somebody brought you. There's a handful of you that just showed up on your own because you, you, know, you knew somebody maybe. Not many people. There, there wasn't but about 30 of us here at that time. But, but you just brought somebody. And so people ask me all the time. and say, well, what kind of like, strategy do you have to grow the church? I, say, I don't have any strategy whatsoever. I just have people that invite their friends. We got a bunch of Phillips and, and, and Andrews at our church, and they just invite their friends, and their friends show up. That's a great way to do it. So Philip went to look for Nathaniel. We found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I think that's funny. Like think of some little podunk town. I'm not going to name one near here because then you would, like, like Bastrop, my hometown that I was born in. All that's in Bastrop is like my house, a church, and a paper mill. All the water in Bastrop is yellow from the paper mill. The whole city smells like a rotten egg from the paper mill. The paper mill has dominated that town. It'd be like someone saying, Jesus came from Bastrop. You know, Bastrop? Nothing good comes from Bastrop, except that it smells bad, right? Yellow water and egg smell. Verse, uh, verse 46, can anything good come from Nazareth? Look at what Philip says. Philip's, already follow- Philip's been following Jesus for five minutes, and look at what Philip says. Come and see, right? Like, he's already picking up on the lingo. Philip's like, I know how to do this. Come and see. That's what the, father- that's what the, the, the Savior says. Come and see. As they approached, Jesus said, now there is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. I want to pause here. I got a couple of places I'm going to pause. I'm going to pause here, verse 48, and then again in verse 51. And this is where we're going to get ready to close. So he looks at Nathanael and he says, there's a genuine son of Israel. What does that mean? It means no mask, no deception. It means somebody that just, they are who they are. Have you ever seen those people when they're in their office or they're in their place, they're one person, but whenever they're off stage or they're out of the office, they're a totally different person. And Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, this guy's genuine. Another way of saying this, and, and this is kind of a Jewish way of saying this that I thought was cool in my studies that I came across, is it says, here is a man that's full of Israel and no Jacob. Now, now, for some of you, you may not understand that, but if you go back to the Old Testament, there was a guy named Jacob, and Jacob's name means deceiver. If your name is Jake or Jacob in here, sorry. Uh, whoa, might have to change your name, boss. The word Jacob means deceiver. Somebody that's not real. But God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and that's where we get the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus looks at Nathanael, he says, here's all Israel and no Jacob. No Jacob. How does Jesus want you to come to him today? He wants you to come with no mask. You don't have to try to be good. You don't have to put on airs. You don't have to pretend like you got it all together. As a matter of fact, he would prefer you show up without it all together. He doesn't want any mask on. Verse 48. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. This is huge. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Why is that important? Why does he get so hyped up about that? Some people have said, oh, Jesus probably just walked past him one day and saw him sitting under a fig tree. But that doesn't make any sense, because why would he get excited about it? Right? Right. He, he wouldn't get excited about it, except if he was all alone under the fig tree. And what a lot of scholars say is that the Jews, a lot of times, whenever they really needed to pray... I'm not talking about waking up in the morning and saying your prayers. I'm not talking about saying your prayers before you go to bed. I'm talking about whenever you are desperate, when you need God to move in your life, when you need God to move in your body or in your marriage or in your finances or in your job or in your family, when you are desperate for a move of God, you go find yourself a tree. You go find yourself an isolated place and you get under that tree and it's that private place that you can lean up against and you can call out to God and you can cry out to him and you can seek his face and you can can be desperate all you want because nobody sees you in your desperation. And Nathaniel walks up and Jesus says, I saw you under the tree. I saw you under the tree. Some of us have come in the room today. And we're under a tree. We're desperate. There's something missing on the inside. There's something missing in our marriage. There's something missing in our family. There's something, something missing in our, in our future. We're saying, I just don't know what to do next. We're desperate for a move of God in our life. And we're crying out to God and we think nobody sees us and nobody knows and and Jesus is saying today, I saw you under the fig tree. I saw you in your seeking. I saw you in your desperation. I saw you in that place where you cried out to me and nobody saw your tears, but I saw your tears. And you screamed and you were upset and you were confused and you were angry, but I saw you. I saw you in the seeking. Nathaniel says, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. Verse 51. Last one. We made it. We made it. Probably the most important verse here. I tell you the truth. You will see all heaven open up and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man. The one who is a stairway. Between heaven and earth. Jesus says this. He says, you got excited because I said I saw you. But let me give you something even better. Not only did I see you under the fig tree, but now you're going to see me be the stairway to heaven. You're going to see me be the only path that you have to get to God. God. And you've been crying out to God and you've been needing God to move in your life, and and you've been under that fig tree and you've been desperate, and and, and your boy said, Hey, just come to church with me. They said, Just come and see. And you came and you showed up, and here's what God's saying to you today I saw you under the fig tree, but at the same time, I got a solution for you. The solution is me. I'm the solution, I'm the bridge. Between heaven and Earth, I'm the one that can get you to God. The Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father unless they come through me. Won't you stand up with me this morning? John 1: 11 through13, we said this earlier. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. There's a lot of people in this world, in this nation, in this city, that will reject what God wants to do in their life. You may be sitting here today. You may be rejecting him already. You may be saying this is a bunch of hogwash, This silliest stuff. Stick with us through the, through the series. I promise you the book of John can change your life. But there's some of us today that want to believe. There's some of us today that say, I'm going to believe, I'm going to keep on believing. I'm going to accept, I'm going to grab hold of what you're saying. I'm going to hold on tight. I'm never going to let go. I'm going to grab hold of Christ. I'm never going to let go. And it says they are reborn. Later on in John, John chapter 3, he calls it being born again. Reborn the same thing. In other words, it doesn't matter what your past was like. It doesn't matter how you were born. It doesn't matter what, what your mama did and your daddy did and your granddaddy did. None of that stuff matters. Because in Christ, we're reborn. I've had people argue with me and they've said, Yeah, but you don't know. I, I was just born this way. I can't help it. I'm saying, but you've missed the point of the gospel. That's why I don't like to use the word Saved. I like two words. I like two phrases. I like being born again because it shows that my life is not not the same. I'm transformed. I'm born brand new. And I like to be a Christ follower because it means I'm living the way he lived, not the way I was born. I'm living a new way. The book that we're reading is all about transformation. I've got some prayer team folks that are gonna come down to the front. And as they come down, I'm gonna pray for you right now. I'm just gonna pray that That whatever it is the Holy Spirit is stirring up in your life, that you would have the boldness and the courage to get someone to pray with you this morning. And as we pray, the the worship team, they're going to sing one more song. And so if you're you're not coming down for prayer, I encourage you, lift up praises. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And we want the Holy Spirit to show up and move in this place because there's people that are desperate today. There's people that have come in here today and you're sitting under the fig tree. And you're desperate. You're missing something. And you need God to do a work in your life. So I'm going to pray for you. When I get done praying, they're going to sing and you slip out of your seat. If you need prayer for anything, come down and let us pray with you today. Lord God, I pray for everybody in this room. I pray for those that may not know you today, that may not be serving you. God, that today they would believe. They would believe that Jesus is just like those seven things we read. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the rabbi that teaches us how to live. He's the son of God and the son of man. He's the ladder, the stairway to get me from where I am to where God is. He is the one. And so, God, I just pray today that we would accept you. We would accept your sacrifice. We would accept your love. We would grab hold of it. We would never let go. God, for those of us that are under the fig tree today and we're desperate, we're crying out, God, today we're, we're struggling with some areas in our life. And we just need a move of God. I pray today that we would come and see. We would just show up at the altar today and, and knowing that this isn't a magical place, but it's a place of connection. It's a place of prayer. It, this is like the fig tree, God. Or we can come down and let someone pray with us. So as we sing, as we worship one more time, Holy Spirit, move in this place and draw us to a place of transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer today, come on down.